You're listening to Run Chat Live podcast, putting the evidence back into running injury and performance. How are you doing? Welcome to Munch Out Live podcast. Uh, very excited. If you listen to the podcast, and this is recorded live on YouTube, um, so if you are interested in joining us live and being able to talk to my guests face to face, as it were, then uh, just look out for the adverts on social media at Munch Out Live, and you can come and join us live. Um, but if you are listening to the podcast, and thank you very much. If you do enjoy it, then do me the favour of leaving a nice rating or review. Thank you very much. So we are at episode sixty-four of Run Chat Live which is part four, the final part, sadly, um, of our current gait analysis special. Um, so just to take you through, in case you're joining this last one and you're not aware of the other ones, um, we started off with Dr. Max Paquette in episode 61, a couple of months ago now, who is the Associate Professor of the University of Memphis Human Performance Centre, who gave us a kind of a wonderful intro to gait analysis, some of the misconceptions, how traditional gait analysis has had to evolve a little bit, not completely, we're not throwing it out the door completely, but how we've had to move on a little bit from the days of, let's see what's happening um, at your subtalar joint, because we can see that with our eyes and therefore you're gonna need the shoe. A wonderful, all the guests I've chosen are fantastic educators, as well as being so experienced with regard to research. I have cherry picked my guests, but that's for your benefit, not because they're all saying something I'll agree with. Um, as always, Run Chat Live is about putting the evidence back into running injury and running management. So that's why I've chosen the people I am. Um, and we continue. Episode 62 was um, Jean-Francois Scullier, um, who is Vice President and Director of Research and Development at the Running Clinic. Some of you will know um, JF already because he was a guest at my Run Chat Live conference 2019. I dragged him all the way from Canada to sunny Brighton. And another great episode um, focused a lot on JF's most recent study, which is all about gait retraining. Um, and he took the, the most common assumptions we make with regards to how we can affect um, parts of the body with, with certain kind of cues and changes. And he analyzed them all in the study and came up with some interesting results. Um, great episode. And as with all of them, uh, you can listen to it on any podcast app, or if you want to watch the video, just go to the Bunch of Live YouTube channel. We then went uh, a couple of weeks ago now with the wonderful Dr. Izzy Moore, so a guest who I brought to Brighton, this time only from Cardiff. Um, and uh, Izzy talked about more about particularly sex-specific variables and whether we should be considering different factors when the runner on the treadmill is female. Um, wonderful episode. Um, again, Izzy Moore is a fantastic researcher, like all of my guests. Um, and and a wonderful calmness to them. I don't want to say she's the most calm for them, but she does have a wonderful calmness to her, which is amazing considering that I forced her to come onto uh, into the live lunch uh, at live podcast when she only had about a couple of hours sleep because we recently had recently had a little one, so that was cool. Um, so that's there as well for you to listen to. And Izzy actually said on there her two mentors, and um, one was. Um, um, not on the show, haven't been able to get um, Irene here, but we did manage to get Dr. Alison Gruber, who uh, Izzy gave a shout out for, and uh, Alison Gruber is going to be with us shortly. Um, Dr. Alison Gruber is Assistant Professor in the Department of Kinesiology at Indiana University, Bloomington. And as um, Dr. Izzy Moore said a couple of weeks ago, it's just one of the huge names um, with a lot of respect, um, starting back probably nearly 15 years ago now, 
um, with, with some magnificent papers, um, working with some magnificent other authors. And we've got the joy of spending an hour with Dr. Alison Gruber very shortly. Before I do that, just as it's the last episode, just to let you know if you are UK based and you've been stimulated into kind of modifying your gate analysis provision, or maybe you're interested in starting up some kind of gate analysis, but you want to stay on the evidence informed page, then I am running a course. It's going to be in May. Uh, two online mornings will be um, or online, and then the last one will be face to face um, in Exeter. Okay, there might be more around the country, but for the moment, if you want to get to Exeter, it's going to be hosted by the school. Full details, as always, at runchatlive.com. Right, enough about that, enough about me. Um, let's start this episode, episode 64, Footwear and Foot Strike, with my very special guest, Dr. Alison Gruber. Dr. Alison Gruber, how are you? Good, thank you. Um, I'm doing very well. It's nice to be here. Oh no, it's really, it's really nice of you. And I must start. I think I started the same way with Dr. Max Paquette, where I, where I just mentioned that the initial response from your email when I said, "Hi, I want to be on a uh, a podcast talking about gay analysis," you were like, "Thank you very much." I could feel <laughs> your palm coming up and reaching through my screen, going, "I might not be the person to talk to." But then we realised. I mean, why would just repeat to our audience? Why was that initial response? What were you worried about? Well, I think it's difficult to do gait analyses when we don't quite know yet as researchers what drives running injury. Um, we can't say it's due to one thing or another, at least on the sample level of our different running studies. Fantastic. Does that mean that you think gait analysis should seldom be used? I think it... <laughs> It can be used, I think, for individuals that are having a uh, recurring injury or, you know, something that cannot necessarily be explained by addressing external risk factors. Um, it, it might be helpful. Like, I, ha I had one. I have a recurring medial tibial stress issues, whether it's compartment syndrome, bone stress reactions or shin splints. I've had it all. Um, I've, I've had one and I think the only thing that they picked out is that I have a, a little bit of uh, knee hyperextension at the end of swing. So I, I had no idea. Um, so is that the cause of my injuries? Well, probably not, but um, it, it was helpful to know that I had something that I could think about. And I think some of the research has done a really great job like, um, identifying things that we can correct to improve form and reduce stresses, like um, making sure your knees aren't crossing midline or something like that. But I think there there is a value, I think, on an individual basis. Um, but is it fundamentally necessary? Maybe not, or at least not for every single case. Fantastic. And that has been a message um, which has been carried through the series and hopefully one that listeners are going to take with them. Um, but but again, as you've said, there's some cases where the research kind of suggests that, particularly with gait modification, like JF um, came with some wonderful examples. I wanted to have Rich Willie on the show as well, who I know um, you know. And um, and again, I mean, there, there's we mustn't throw it all out because particularly with like plantar flexors and stuff, if you want to offload them or move load away from the knee, we can play around with cadence and things. I'm sure these things will come up a little bit as we talk. But yeah, we need to be relying on it less. It's not as much of a low-hanging fruit as we once thought it was, is it, running form? We just don't yeah. have to deal with it. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think uh, on individual cases, it, it could be good. But I think what we need to shy away from is saying, oh, this paper said this about some gate aspect. We need to make sure that you're not doing that thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and ground reaction forces is one of those things in particular, um, trying to reduce that impact force. Um, this is a highly debated topic, but I don't necessarily think that we need to be you know, reducing that for everyone. That's really interesting you come up with that. And this is what's going to happen with, with somebody of your experience tonight, because you're going to come out with things which I'm thinking, right, let's talk about that for 50 minutes then. Because that's probably a cue which a lot of people I know therapists are using, like run softer, okay? Um, because they think that if you're running softer, then you're reducing that impact when you land and therefore you're less likely to get maybe bone stress injuries or something. But it's we're realizing now it might not be as obvious as that. Would you say? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to kind of say impacts do not cause injury because in terms of a mechanical fatigue scenario, uh, you need to have force, you need to have mechanical stress and strain in order to break a tissue. Uh, but I think the issue is that we don't know what's too high or not high enough. I think it's almost like a U-shaped curve. Uh, and I'm just basing this on, on what I know of the literature and just some educated guesses um, that too much is certainly bad, but what is too much? And I think it's a lot higher than what we think is causing injury. So reducing that impact force, reducing how hard you hit the ground, um, I think maybe on an individual basis, uh, it might be good, but it might not be the solution for everyone. And, and it could be. And actually what we're starting to see from some of the prospective studies is that the uninjured group actually has greater vertical loading rates than the injured group. It's not coming to statistical significance yet, but it's not telling the same story. And there seems to be a switch in that story looking at prospective versus retrospective studies. And the overall literature uh, does not necessarily support the what is sometimes referred to or seems to be discussed as a a law, a scientific law. Like we know this thing, vertical loading rates, it causes injury. It's a fact. And you can read it in many journal articles these days. Like they're going to start an intro with, oh, vertical loading rates are in a cause for running injury. The evidence really isn't as strong as some people think it is. Um, I think I, I just did a, a review of systematic reviews, if you will, and about 28 published observational running injury study, uh, studies have been done. Uh, and 19 out of 28 found no support for greater impact variables associated with running injury. Uh, so eight of those were prospective, 11 were retrospective. But I think just that that proportion of studies not finding statistical significance is uh, not well communicated in the literature right now. That's fascinating. That's and I'm interested as well, because you said it, if you could go in a little bit more detail, you mentioned prospective and retrospective studies. What are some of the limitations and the reasons why some of the studies we might have relied on before might not have been as good as the studies being done these days with regards to that two different ways of doing study? 
Well, all the studies have been very well done. Um, so just the fact that it's retrospective, um, it doesn't mean that it's bad. There's certainly a lot of things that we can learn from retrospective studies. The one thing that we can't say about retrospective studies is that the thing that we observe is the thing that caused injury because we don't know if there was a, a change in gait after that injury occurred. So now to kind of taking a look at some of the prospective studies that are coming out, it's possible that the injured group in those retrospective studies have greater vertical loading rates now because they changed to that potentially different uh, gait pattern or potentially protective gait pattern or some adaptation to the injury. Uh, so the with the prospective studies, we measure people before some monitoring period, whether it's six months, a year, two years, what have you. And we compare everyone's gait. And at the end of the study, people are either injured or uninjured. And then we compare and say, what's different about those two people or those two groups, excuse me. And by having that measurement before, you can say that it might contribute or it might be a risk factor. Um, but certainly there are a number of other things that aren't necessarily measured. Um, so I think everyone agrees that that running injuries are multifactorial and prospective studies are, are taking a small piece of risk factors, um, but not necessarily looking at absolutely everything. And it's impossible to look at absolutely everything. Um, things like, oh, nutrition, sleep, I mean, those things are, are not well investigated yet, but they're certainly going to have something to do with it. Fantastic. Great. So I think just to give our audience an idea, I looked at ResearchGate and we've had, I've had this conversation with our listeners for the last three. It's a great site where a lot of therapists, a lot of therapists are kind of worried by the idea of finding research and but ResearchGate is wonderful, I think, because it just gives a list of all of a, an author's particular studies, gives you a chance. A lot of them are free access. A lot of them, sometimes, if you really want to get into it and you just kind of contact the author, they'll send you a copy. A lot of them, you don't have to necessarily pay a fortune to be able to have access to it or just ask. That's one of the good things about social media. You'll find someone with a copy. And generally, the author is not going to lose money because you have got access because someone's giving you the paper you're not taking money out of the author's pockets you're probably just taking money out of the publisher's pockets or something which the author doesn't often worry too much about but um uh we go back to about i would look for you and we go back to about 2009 and i did this with definitely with um izzy a couple of weeks ago i'm going to bring it up onto the screen for those of you who are watching the video on youtube and i'm interested obviously we'll have a look at the title but i want to know where you were in 2009 what your influences were why you chose this as a topic and, and what you found then. So I'm just gonna bring it up. So we've got a little bit of a visual here. Um, I'm gonna put it onto full screen just so we can see it. Um, so this was 2009 and it was metabolic cost of altering foot strike patterns in running. I'm not sure why it's called 2948. I'm sure you'll tell me that now. This is one of your earliest studies, was it to do with running? Yes, um, so this one was the pilot study for my dissertation. So it has the 2948 at the end because that was the abstract number for the okay, American College of Sports Medicine annual meeting. So this was um, the first study that uh, ended up becoming, or at least being the pilot data for a 2013 paper uh, on the metabolic cost and um, uh, carbohydrate oxidation in forefoot and rear foot runners. So, what was there anything particular that made you choose that of your dissertation or was it what was the 
era like at the time? What else were you looking and reading and what was kind of inspiring you? Yeah. Um, so at the time I was at the University of Massachusetts studying under Joe Hamill. And um, I think at that point I had just changed my research topic for my dissertation. I had done a bunch of work on ACL injuries and um, I wanted to investigate the differences in patient outcomes between a single bundle versus a double bundle ACL reconstruction. And after realizing that the logistics of that were going to be very difficult, um, particularly getting enough patients to have the sample size that I needed for the particular outcomes that I was looking for. Um, Joe thought, hey, what about foot strike patterns? What do you think of that? And so he pointed me into a couple of resources and kind of the rest is history. That ended up being my dissertation topic. And that's why I'm here today. Amazing. Um, what was the, what, do you remember back then, 2009, what was the thought back then with regards to foot strike? Were people being kind of teased into one particular idea or? Yeah. So coincidentally, this um, paper, or this conference paper came out right before the big 2010 Dan Lieberman paper on barefoot running. Um, so it didn't have as much hype uh, at the time, but essentially my dissertation and this preliminary work aimed to address some of the main quote unquote benefits or the main reasons why someone might want to switch to a four foot pattern. So um, first being it's more economical or you have a, a lower metabolic cost running with a four foot pattern than a rear foot pattern. Um, and then other uh, claims about the four foot pattern we investigated as well in my dissertation. So zooming fast forward to now current times, 2023, can we have a spoiler? Is there a metabolic advantage to doing one or the other? Uh, no, <laughs> it, there, there is no metabolic advantage. Um, so my 2013 paper uh, that was published in Journal of Applied Physiology looked at the rate of oxygen consumption as well as the relative carbohydrate oxidation. So the carbohydrate oxidation is essentially like how quickly you're using your glycogen stores. So um, this is the thing that will tell you when you're going to hit the wall. So um, at the time, the only studies that have been done in terms of metabolic cost between foot strike patterns had used habitual rear foot runners. Uh, so um, my study, and I think another one that came out around the same time were the first to include a group of habituated midfoot and forefoot runners. So um, that allowed us to look at people who are already habituated to these different foot strike patterns so that we wouldn't have to worry about the task novelty affecting metabolic cost. Uh, so when we compared the two different groups, rear foot and forefoot groups, running with their habitual foot strike pattern, we found no difference in metabolic cost. So um, there seemed to be no advantage or, or forefoot runners did not run with a better running economy than rear foot runners. Um, and with the carbohydrate oxidation, uh, again, we didn't see differences between the groups running with their habitual pattern, but when we had everyone run rear foot and everyone run forefoot. So we took both groups, collapsed them into one and compared the foot strike patterns. At the medium speed is where we saw a significant difference in the relative carbohydrate oxidation with forefoot having a greater rate of carbohydrate oxidation. So um, that tells us that 
at that specific speed, which is a limitation of the this measure, at that specific speed for these specific subjects, forefoot running actually increased the rate of carbohydrate oxidation. So theoretically, if you were to run forefoot, you would hit the wall faster than if you were to run barefoot. Um, and there were some other kind of more minute differences like how much the rear foot group changed their metabolic cost between foot strike patterns versus the forefoot group that you can see in the um, individual differences that I published in the paper. But um, it, it really tells that there's a, an individualized story. So for the group as a whole, neither pattern is better. But if you look at individual differences, then there might be some people who benefit by switching to forefoot, some people that might benefit to by switching to rear foot. So it's, it's really an individualized story. So with that conclusion, how do you, I don't know what it's like for you. I mean, you manage, I, I commend you because you managed to stay away from social media. I think you're only on Twitter and that's, that's wonderful, just like Izzy. Um, but do you still, do you still have the, opinion that a lot of coaches a lot of the advice out there especially in the kind of mass media is still suggesting that if you want to improve your running you need to become a forefoot striker or or just move towards the forefoot is that's that's the answer do you still see that oh yeah i think there's still a lot of misconception about the benefits of uh forefoot running um and one is the metabolic cost so um max actually uh posted he reposted someone else's tweet about a conversation and a lot of the replies were um, oh, mentioning these misconceptions. Like there's more breaking with rear foot. You run faster with forefoot. Forefoot gives, makes you have better performance. Those sorts of things that Max said this, he, it, it represents how the research is not getting translated to the general public as well as it needs to be. So there's some interruption between what we do and what the general public sees that's just blocked. Um, so a lot of the things that were misconceptions back in 2009 when I was first doing this research, they're still present today because we're just not translating the research as well as we could or should be, but I'm not necessarily sure how we could do it better. I was gonna say, have you got any theories as to why? I mean, often they say research is like 13 years behind hitting the shop floor, but you think with the internet now, I mean, maybe I've just answered the question actually, why do these misconceptions still flourish? Uh, I think, um, I, don't, I don't know, I, I really don't, particularly with this one. I mean, there's evidence to the contrary. So I, I'm not sure, maybe that evidence just isn't getting communicated as often, or there are people perpetuating the misconceptions more than people perpetuating the empirical results mm -hmm. yeah it's very tricky i mean in, in when i'm doing courses i quote uh, i've got to do this now my crib sheets now i think it's bruno saragotti with a 2013 paper maybe he was talking about runners beliefs and his conclusion was part of what a therapist needs to do is educate as opposed mm -hmm. to just kind of putting their hands on them and he had like not stretching enough wearing the wrong shoe um, some of them like um not being strong enough or over training were kind of quite commendable but there was definite a lot of myths there and it kind of highlighted what therapists need to do and coaches if they're going to help their runners but also i'm not sure if you're aware of um manuela Bessomi, who's based in australia but from chile she did a paper not too long ago 21 which is also looking at runners behaviors and beliefs 
I mean, I think she was working with JF along the idea that maybe when you could find out what type of belief pattern a runner's got, that would then direct you towards how you're going to reduce the risk of injury by knowing sort of. And that came up with pretty much the same, you know, over-reliance on stretching is going to cure everything, blaming asymmetry, things like that. So it hasn't, that was like a nine-year difference. So it hasn't changed that much. There's still an awful lot of misconceptions out there. Um, but hey, that's hopefully what we're trying to solve with little things like this. We're going yes, to chat live and that's the idea. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, but it's so important though, because we're again, talking about gait analysis, one of the things I know that are well-meaning, you know, we're not saying that everyone who sticks around on a treadmill is just trying to make money, but one of the typical things will be, oh yeah, well, I've just looked at you, look, you're landing on your heel. We need to, you know, start making you run this way or we need to just speed up your cadence or something. We need to get you four foot running because that's the answer. What are some of the dangers of that? Changing what type of injury the person is susceptible to um, and the risk of developing a, a different type of injury. I think um, the the work on minimalist transition, so slowly incorporating minimalist footwear into your running routine, um, that research has essentially demonstrated that even a, a slow transition is not going to prevent injuries. The, I think the, the injury rates between uh, the control groups in those studies and those that um, transition to the minimalist were essentially the same, or there were no statistical differences in, in most of the studies. Um, in a systematic review I did with um, Joe Warren uh, several years ago now, um, uh, identified that um, by taking the, the collective evidence and saying, what story does this tell? Um, and the minimal issues weren't reducing injury rates. So um, I think, and I mentioned minimalist because we tend to switch to a four-foot strike when we run in minimalist footwear. Um, so I think uh, we don't have the same types of studies done with, uh, with just strike patterns, at least not as many. So it's difficult to say uh, the same exact thing will ha uh, happen if you, you transition to a four-foot strike pattern. Um, but we do know that the difference in injury rates between rear foot and forefoot strike runners is, is not different. So it's not going to solve a problem per se. Um, and it could certainly start new problems. Does that mean I think no one should switch their foot strike pattern? No, definitely not. I, I have uh, friends who made a minor adjustment in their foot strike pattern in that took care of their IT band syndrome, for example. So I think it depends on the injury and it depends on the runner and a number of other factors. But it's some, certainly something that I don't think should be recommended to everyone, case by case basis. And it's certainly something you can try. I mean, if you've tried everything else, um, or if this is something that you feel is going to be helpful for you, or um, if you are experiencing injuries that we tend to see more often in rear foot strike runners, then yeah, sure, give it a try. Um, but just be aware of the risks, um, potentially getting a different type of injury, like I did when I I switched, um, or uh, having worse performance, or um, you know, a number of different things that that could happen uh, if you switch. When when did you switch? I'm, I'm glad I, you said I'm a switcher. It's good. It's like switcher anonymous. I'm a switcher. I'm Alison Gruber. When did you yeah. do that? What made you? Well, I, I tried switching. So uh, when I was doing my dissertation study, I wanted to experience what 
I was asking runners to do. I don't, I don't want to just have them run on the treadmill and run through the lab doing both foot strike patterns at all these three speeds without understanding personally what I was asking them to do. Because if you're going to switch, particularly from a rear foot to a forefoot pattern, and you do that acutely um, without a buildup, you might have a lot of delayed onset muscle soreness in your calves the next day. Um, so I wanted to to know what I was asking my subjects to do. And so um, uh, at the time I was trying to get back into running. And so I tried it and I think I got through one run and had a neuroma under my metatarsal. So there you go. It's kind yeah. of commendable then. It's, uh, yeah, you tried what you, what you were preaching and you found out, I bet you changed what you recommended to clients a little bit after that. Yeah. And, um, I've actually noticed, uh, so I'm trying to get back into running again now after uh, a lot of medial tibial stress syndrome issues, um, that, and I think it's because I'm running so slow mm -hmm. that my foot is landing pretty much right underneath me. And because of that, I'm very, very midfoot now. Um, before I had a fairly long stride, I'm comfortable with a long stride. I hate, short steps, fast cadence. I, I just doesn't feel good to me. I don't like it. Mm -hmm. So I was, um, you know, an overstrider and that's probably a whole nother hour of discussion there on what is an overstrider, but I had a, an exaggerated rear foot strike, um, long step length, stride length. And, um, but now starting at basically zero fitness and trying to get back, um, I'm just taking these tiny little steps and I'm very, very, very slow. And uh, now I'm running midfoot and it's not something I thought to do. It's just a, a product of, I think, how slow I'm going and where my foot is landing because of my speed. Fantastic. That's really interesting. It is, it's kind of such the fun's the right word because you're always you're in pain. It's frustrating, like for anyone, and not to be able to do what they want to do. But it makes it interesting if you are a therapist or a coach and you're going through this experience because you realize what it's like for your patients or clients um, and how difficult it is to ease off or look at what you need to do, whether it's cut down or, or try these drills or whatever. So, yeah, I'm sorry you're struggling. I mean, mine, mine was a cliche. Mine was I read Born to Run and I was on holiday in Mexico and I decided to just run in the sand every day on holiday imagining I could hear the kind of like sound in the wind of Indians telling me I was great. Double Achilles tendinopathy got back. There's me walking around, hopping around, kind of not hopping at all, stumbling around. And uh, yeah, other people at work saying, Matt, you realize you don't have to get every injury you, you treat here. You can't just, you know, say, but, yeah, but it changed my, I was, I was very aware then, you know, of what was going on at that time. Talking of Achilles, I want to bring up another paper. Um, 2035. Wow. I've got so many papers here, but we'll just bring up the ones we come across. So let me bring up this one here. I'll put it onto full screen so I can see it. Um, it was, uh, I will miss that one for the moment. I want to go to, yeah, Achilles tendon forces in forefoot and rear foot running, which I think kind of links into what we've been talking about. Uh, that was 2011. Any memories of that? Oh, yeah. So this was a, another dissertation paper. Um, so uh, one of the aims was to look at how the uh, Achilles tendon moment arm might be a contributor to running economy in these two different types of groups, but also to look at the, the forces going on in the Achilles tendon. Um, and the you might jump right into, oh, Achilles tendon force, Achilles tendinopathy injury stuff, but there's also a, a performance aspect of this as well. And so this particular study in this chapter was 
going into a little bit of both. So in order to utilize elastic energy in your Achilles tendon, you need to stretch it like a rubber band. And if you stretch a rubber band more, you get more launch out of it. So if you're trying to hit your little brother across the room, you're going to stretch that rubber band as far as you can and then release it and then it's going to go very far. So with Achilles tendons um, and any elastic structure, you have to put force into it to be able to store energy to get that energy hopefully back out. So uh, one area for this particular study was jumping into or getting started with musculoskeletal modeling of forefoot running to try to understand the Achilles tendon uh, elastic energy utilization mechanism. Um, so more force happening in the Achilles tendon being transmitted through the Achilles tendon and forefoot running, uh, potentially more stretch and storage of elastic energy that could then help improve running economy. Um, so that was one of the areas, um, but the, the more force is also an issue with, um, you know, of course, being more susceptible to Achilles tendon issues, uh, injury issues as well. So there's a kind of a trade-off of performance in injury risk here. Very interesting. So once again, I guess you've got to look at the person in front of you. Somebody might change um, or, or have a particular foot strike and they might get on very well with it and they're not susceptible to injury. Um, but the next person who comes along could be running exactly the same way and they are set from injury. And we don't know why not. We just have to look what we've got in front of us rather than going by a kind of textbook um, model. Um, we've got a question here. Someone's joined us live. Um, let's just bring it up onto screen so we can see it there. Kima Sabi, nice name, Kima Sabi 75, has got a question. Isn't it necessary to address all components of running, cadence, overstriding, etc., and not just only foot strike pattern? I don't know whether you've just joined us, but yeah, that's that's tonight is called foot strike and footwear. But yeah, what would you say to that question? Um, is it necessary to address all the components? Of, um, so not necessarily. Like you can change your cadence without changing your foot strike pattern, and you can change your foot strike pattern without changing your cadence. So I think um, what you change, it kind of, and if there are changes happening together, um, that it kind of depends on the individual and what they feel comfortable doing. Um, when I was more of a runner than I am now, like I said, my, my stride was very long and I hated having short strides, fast cadence. Um, but I could change my foot strike pattern with those long strides. So that was me. Someone else might need to shorten their stride or shorten their step to be able to facilitate a change in foot strike pattern. Okay, great answer. And Kima Sabi <laughs> has said, um, thanks for answering, answering my question. No worries. That's the idea. That's why we do it live. If anyone has got a question, then bring it up onto the screen. Um, yeah, so once again, it's uh, I worry that sometimes the message is going to get boring, but it is. It's individual. Depends. Depends on the person in front of you. Yeah. Um, the great Craig Payne, I'm not sure if you're aware of his, his work, but a podiatrist from Melbourne, Australia, he kind of said like different shoes will affect different runners at different times at different speeds, different types of run. It's all very much different, different, different. It depends. Um, there's not there's not a textbook. That's the message. There isn't. We're not like cars. There's not a manual of how to fix somebody or reasons to say why it's not running. It's, we're far more complicated than that. Exactly. Um, fantastic. So um, generally, there's this idea that if you are 
moving towards a forefoot strike, then you're going to work the plantar flexors and the calf complex more. And if you move backwards towards the rear foot, um, then you're going to take maybe the load away from those plantar flexors and Achilles, but put it more onto the knee. Is that a simplification? Or is that something you think the therapist can work with if they've got somebody who's got symptoms coming into the clinic? Yeah, I mean, uh, mechanically speaking, on the pure mechanical sense, <coughs> excuse me, um, that's that's essentially true. And it's a, a function of what you're doing differently with your ankle in the forefoot versus the rear foot strike pattern. So you do shift the loads a little bit between your ankle and knees. So if you're having more knee issues, then potentially a forefoot or midfoot strike pattern might benefit you, but maybe not. Um, and there's other things that we can do to shift those loads or reduce those loads besides just change foot strike pattern. Um, reducing cadence is one. Um, so I think in all of the evidence that we have, um, or lack of evidence is probably more appropriate. Um, the one thing that seems to kind of continue to creep out as being important for distinguishing between injured and uninjured or um, helping injured runners or not. I feel if it's going to be one thing, it's going to be a cadence issue. Changing your cadence, we know it's going to change the internal loads inside the knee and ankle joint. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, there, there's still a need for more studies on it. Um, not every study is showing benefits of a changing cadence. Um, but I think if there's one variable that's going to come out of a gate mechanism for improving or reducing injury risk, my money's on cadence. That's I think that's a, that's a good bet. And I like the way, cause this surprises some therapists, not all therapists, but people who work in runners, they automatically assume that they need to increase cadence because guess what? They've kind of heard that elite runners have high cadences. So that's where we should all be going. But not many of them think about, hey, maybe we need to reduce this cadence here. Maybe we need to take it down because it seems like that's going against the Holy Grail. And um, where you are, do you still see or are you still aware of coaches and therapists kind of chasing the magic 180? Yeah, I mean, I hate having a faster cadence because that that's just me. I think the way my muscles work, I just like having a, a slower oscillation of my legs. And that's, that's where I'm most comfortable with. Um, I think we would need to increase that cadence, shorten step length to get those internal load benefits. Um, but I think what we sometimes kind of skip over and is that the cadence is very, very fast in elite runners because they are running at such fast speed. So using elite runners as a model for what our cadence should be is not entirely appropriate. So we need to have um, cadence and step length thresholds, if you will, for different types of speeds and potentially different types of runners. Um, so it's... And we don't have those numbers yet. We can't, there is no magic cadence at all speeds or for each speed that is going to be the, the special sauce, if you will, or just the, the magic number that's going to, to fix injuries. We don't know what that is. So potentially just 
shortening your step length, increasing your cadence, maybe just a little bit, maybe not as large as the the 10% that we're seeing in a lot of these studies, um, that might be helpful. But maybe we need to do a 10% change as well. Um, and you have to also understand, uh, or it, clinicians should also understand that when we change cadence, we're also changing from a preferred gait pattern. And we tend to optimize for metabolic cost. So whatever we do naturally at any given speed is the way our bodies are selecting to reduce our metabolic cost. So by changing cadence, you're potentially increasing your metabolic cost of running at the exact same speed, at least for a short period of time until that new cadence becomes your new preferred cadence. Mm -hmm. So running might feel more difficult for some people at the start of a cadence change. Yeah, that's great advice. And that's something which if people are on having clients on their treadmills and they're playing around with cadence drills, they need to explain to the client or they're not going to come back because they're going to feel exhausted. They're going to feel tired. They're going to be thinking, this is not working for me, mate. I know you're saying I'm supposed to be. So you need to give that kind of disclaimer down or that kind of caveat saying it's not going to feel great to start off. Because as you say, the body's just trying to work in a different way. And it's, you know, probably brain nervous system related, obviously, it's going to output a little bit of resistance and fatigue and go, what are you doing? This isn't normal. So yeah, important point to make. Um, let's go to Kima Savvy, shall we? Do you know, do you know, you know, Kima Savvy, you've heard of Kima Savvy, have you? Do you know what the name Kima Savvy is or where that, that character's from? I've I recognize the name. I don't remember the reference. <laughs> I'm going to say something interesting. Oh, I think it's interesting. I've always enjoyed it. I don't know whether Kima Savvy yourself, I'm not sure whether, I don't know whether you're male or female, but Kima Savvy was the name of the Indian in the Lone Ranger. I don't know. You're probably not old. Oh, uh, yes. Ranger. Okay. Yeah. The Indian guy. And it's an interesting one because Kima Savvy, I don't know what your Spanish is like, but Kima Savvy is from the Spanish for que no sabe, which means he doesn't know. And it's what the Indian used to call the Lone Ranger because the Lone mm. Ranger used to call the Indian tonto, which is Spanish for stupid or silly. So you had this kind of little hidden joke where the white guy, the uh, Lone Ranger, was calling his Indian tonto, like I'm calling you stupid. And then the Indian, the wise Indian, was saying, yeah, I'm going to call you Kimasabe, as in he who doesn't know. So it's kind of that's where Kimasabe comes from. There you go, little anecdote, your next dinner party. Anyway, <laughs> Kimasabe, um, you, that's your fault, mate. That's why you brought that up. Kimasabi says, question, I've read the cadence below 165 has a higher injury risk. Good question. Um, yeah. That is a, a number that has come out. I've also seen like 180, 190 as in the number. Um, there are numbers being thrown out there, um, but we don't know what the special number is. There's uh, not a, there's no evidence, conclusive evidence to suggest a threshold of a specific cadence. So whether that's a, a cadence that all people should run at um, or be uh, above or below, we don't know. Um, but I would imagine that there's more of a, a personal individualized buffer there. So one person, so let's say 165 is the magic number that comes out after a lot more research that needs to be done. Then 165 might be good for some people. 160 might be better for others. So uh, again, we have to be careful about these thresholds because one, we don't have any evidence to suggest that there is a specific threshold yet. Maybe one study found that, a trend to that, um, but it's certainly not a conclusive thing that this, it's, that's it. We're done. 
question has been answered. We we are not there yet with cadence or any gate variable, whether that's vertical loading rates, knee adduction moments, you know, whatever it is, we 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 don't ha- we don't know. <laughs> there you go. Um, so great question, um, Kima Savvy. And again, it's something which people need to be aware of because the number of videos, again, you stick away from social media, so healthy. I can't avoid it. Um, and the number of videos out there, they'll show somebody running really slowly and and then they're, they're freezing it and showing a hill strike. And they're saying, oh, and it's like, well, if you actually looked at people running, at, for example, less than a 10 minute mile, so we're talking about slower than a four and a half hour marathon, which is quite a large population, they're all gonna be running with a cadence of about 165 or even less, because you try running with a higher cadence at that speed, and you're gonna look ridiculous. You're not gonna get very far. Um, so it's it's all relevant to speed, isn't it? And the person. So yeah, you have to watch out for that. Uh, but great question, Kima Savvy. Thanks very much. He who does know you are. Um, I'm really, because we've got you here, um, Alison, I want to bring up another paper of yours, um, if that's okay with you. Where are we? 849. I'm interested in, in my courses and presentations do you know pete larson i'm not sure do you know that he used to have a probably still has a website uh running research junkie is he or on a run blogger pete larson he's a biologist he did he did a study at the 2009 manchester city marathon um he had all his students basically lying down and taking photos of these people at certain marks you're probably familiar with the study yeah and it was painstaking he did a blog about it and like they thought he was crazy and they organized all these photos to find the people at the i think it's the 10k mark or something and then try and find the same shoes again um later on down at the 32k mark and just see these are four foot runners these are here here you know these have got different feet it's an amazing study yeah um and of course he showed you know his, his study came out that it um, like 88.9% of uh, the runners were heel striking um, and I think less than 2% were forefoot. This is in a marathon. So either they're all doing it wrong, uh, which I suppose is one interpretation, or that's kind of the best way for the people to move. So I was interested to see, and I'm interested in what, how you did this and what your conclusions were in your study, which was looking at, let's see if I can bring it up here. I'm going to have to fast forward past a few because you've done so many. Um, let's go past that. That's the ground reaction force. Here we go. Foot strike patterns and race performance in the 2017 IAAF World Championship men's 10,000 meter final. That was done with fast forwarding now to 2021. So, yeah, for people who aren't familiar with the study, what did that involve? What did you do? Yeah, um, so I was actually invited to collaborate on this study and um, an earlier study uh, with the marathon uh, by Brian Hanley, who uh, led this research group, who did all the filming, did all the data analysis. So I came on at the lower end of the work effort (laughs) uh, end um, in just helping to interpret the data and and write up the papers. Um, So for this 10,000 meter study, Essentially, the, the same thing that Larson did, uh, take video at different uh, points in the race. Um, so on the track, it was very simple. Um, set up a camera, take pictures, measure their foot strike pattern based on the angle of their foot with the ground. Um, and so in this elite of elite 10,000 meter race, there were no rear foot strikers. So I think... This is kind of where some of the the misconceptions might come 
out. Like, oh, there were no rear foot strikers, meaning rear foot strikers are not good enough. Their performance isn't good enough to be in this 10,000 meter race. Maybe so. We can't, we can't say because we didn't have any rear foot strikers in this race. Um, but I think it's more of just the, the mechanical function of speed. This is, this is the pure mechanics of it. As we run faster, we have to shift to a more anterior foot strike to be able to accommodate the mechanics of running fast. Um, it, that is specifically being able to produce enough force against the ground in a very, very short contact time. Um, and the ability to produce force over shorter and shorter periods of time is uh, the the limitation for sports for sprint running. Certainly this isn't sprinting, but it's still very, very fast running um, for this elite group. And so I think we're not seeing rear foot strikers simply because, um, well, one, the mechanics of it. Two, we can't exclude any influence of coaching. Maybe all of these runners were told to midfoot and forefoot strike a long time ago. Um, it's it's hard to say. Um, so what we can say, though, is with the mix of midfoot and forefoot strike runners, there was no benefit of midfoot versus forefoot in terms of, of race performance. So, um, for example, the, the first place runner was forefoot to start and the end, but midfoot in the middle. Um, the second place runner was midfoot for the vast majority of the race, then was a little asymmetrical towards the end, and then finished midfoot. Uh, third and fourth place, purely forefoot. Fifth and sixth place, purely midfoot. So we can't say that with these two strike patterns, there's a performance benefit of one over the other for, for these elite runners. Okay, interesting. I'm not sure. I can't recall. Did you see difference on the same runner between left and right strike when they landed? Yes, we did look at asymmetry, and there wasn't a ton of it. Um, I think only three runners had asymmetry, um, and it was just in, in short periods of time during the race. Okay. I'm going to have to mention this study more because it kind of contradicts you know, I don't want to be accused of cherry picking because as we were talking before, I've got the photo by Dr. Ian Hunter that was taken of the American trials, 10K as well. And he's got some, you know, very well-known names. He did it for men and women in the races. And there's a whole display of different gentle heel strikes. Because that's the other thing. We need to remind people that there's different ways of heel striking. You know, yes. it depends a lot. There's a glancing heel strike. It's very tricky, isn't it? You can't just say they're all heel strikers. You could divide that into three different types at least. But yeah, I'll have to mention it because his his did show a lot of variety. But um, obviously your one didn't come up. But it's interesting that there was variations in the same runner at different times in the race. So yeah. Well, look, it's 5-2 now and it's worked out quite well because although you've been continuing, you've done plenty more studies 20, and throughout 2022. I'm interested in this final one I want to bring up. Um, let's change that because it would be um, a nice way. We've talked basically so far, it seems, about it depends. Let's not put so much importance on foot strike, on uh, the type of shoe. It's not a case of everybody needs to be minimalistic in their shoe or everybody needs to protect themselves with a more traditional shoe. Um, it depends on the individual. But it's interesting to see that after, I think you've got a definitely over, it says there, doesn't it? How many publications? 104 publications to your name. Um, in 2022, September, you came up with this study, the missing link in running injury research, um, non-running physical activity. 
Can you talk us a little bit through that? Yeah, so this is uh, an editorial essentially making a suggestion on an area that we should start looking at more, um, which is what runners are doing outside of running. What are they doing for the other 23 or so hours of the day? Um, if injury is a mechanical fatigue phenomenon, then we need to consider the mechanical load on our bodies during more things than just running. So whether that's other exercise um, or are commuting? Are we walking to commute? Are we biking to commute? Um, what are, are we standing at a standing desk all day? All of these sorts of things. And I think uh, maybe we haven't been looking at it as much uh, in the past. And there's certainly a few studies that have looked at, um, you know, have taken some survey information of what other sports people are doing. Um, but very, even a small fraction of those use that information um, in regression and analyses to identify if it was a risk factor for injury or not. And the, even the answers there are even mixed. Um, but we, people might not think it's important or may have glazed over it thinking that the loads that we experience during activities, daily living are just so low that they don't matter. Um, but a nice little example we have in this paper uses data from a, a simulation study by Ross Miller that looked at standing, walking, and running. Uh, how much knee joint load is occurring during those three three tasks? And so um, what we did in this editorial is use that data to calculate if someone was using a standing desk for eight hours at their work, then that's the equivalent in terms of knee joint load of walking a marathon distance every day. So when you think of it like that, then it, it's clear that these seemingly benign loads that we are experiencing throughout our day might be a contributor to injury. And we do have two kind of differing hypotheses on this. One, doing too much activity means that your tissues aren't going into rest and repair mode, and therefore you're not building new tissue, strengthening your tissue, and uh, creating those beneficial adaptations that you need to prevent injury and to, and to get stronger. And at the other end, doing a lot more activity means more adaptation, more strength, more opportunity to overload and improve your tissue. So there's, you know, two different ways that this idea of, you know, non-running activity contributing to injury or not. Either too much is bad or too little is bad. Um, and I think that's the case with, with ground reaction forces as well. So uh, one of the, the motivations for this study was to just simply look, you know, at the total loading picture. Maybe some of the, the misconceptions or the, not misconceptions, uh, conflicting evidence that we have um, with the biomechanics research in that we have one study that says X variable is an important risk factor, another study or two or three others that say that it's not an important risk factor. So there's the only thing that we do have is conflicting evidence. So maybe things that we haven't measured yet is contributing to that conflicting evidence, such as what people are doing outside of running. Um, so for example, in the, the studies that um, are hopefully going to be coming out this year, um, we found that our, uh, in our prospective running injury study, we found that the difference in mileage and running experience in our injured and under 
groups, our prospectively injured and uninjured groups was not different. So we couldn't say that their injuries were due to some mileage volume issue. Um, we did see some gait differences here and there, but um, what we did find is that the, the runners that were engaging in more moderate to vigorous, particularly vigorous physical activity outside of running tended to have a lower risk of injury. At least it was trending in that direction. We, we certainly didn't have the, the sample size large enough for um, statistical uh, significance or to have enough power, I should say. Um, but it, it was just the, the first go at this particular paradigm. Um, and so another motivation of this line of work is trying to kind of tease out why, say, for example, a ground reaction force or the amount of pronation might be a problem for one runner, but that same ground reaction force or that same amount of pronation is not a risk factor for another. So maybe it's the way that we're dealing with our environment and a combination of how we move through that environment that's contributing together to create the injury risk. So by looking at uh, biomechanics alone, we're not getting there. But if you add in the loading that we're experiencing throughout the entire day, not just during running activity, then maybe we'll start to see what biomechanics are actually important. Very interesting. And that kind of sums up nicely the fact that be, although research is conflicting with biomechanics, like you say, what well, that's forcing people like yourself who need even research to do is to look elsewhere. That's the healthy thing about knowing that we're not quite sure what's going on here because you start looking outside of the box, as it were. So yeah, that's amazing. That and and for people who are offering gait analysis, um, this is again a reason why by staying more evidence informed and following the great work of people like Dr. Alison Gruber and Dr. Izzy Moore, you can give that client who comes to you much more maybe than you could before. Again, it's still testing things out, but rather than just looking at their foot stripe, looking at their cadence, and looking at all these things, which it's a bit you might want to play around with it. Thinking outside the box, looking at what they're doing based on the evidence you've read here, for example, of what they're doing outside when they're not running. Are they standing at the desk eight hours a day because they're told that sitting is going to shorten the iliopsoas or something? You know, it's like, look at their beliefs. Um, very interesting, really healthy. Thank you. And, yeah, that's great. Um, it's like Dr. Izzy Moore um, two weeks ago, she was talking about, again, thinking of what else could be contributing with regards to female athletes. She was thinking, well, because a lot of research has been done with guys, for example, breast movement has not been kind of assessed before or taken as a factor. And she's doing a lot of work at Cardiff now at looking at how breast movement maybe does affect what's happening at the lower level. We kind of like the idea of arms, for example, causing a contralateral effect on the hip and that sort of stuff. But maybe the amount of breast movement could be a factor with female athletes. It's something that hasn't been looked at yet because of the kind of like patriarchy in, in research, I'm sure you're more than aware of. But yes, yeah, thinking outside the box. So suddenly if a female athlete does come to you and they're expecting you to tell them what shoes to wear based on the level of pronation, you can go explain it nicely, get them on the treadmill, get that therapeutic alliance. But then you could say, when was the last time you actually looked at sports bra fitting and stuff, you know, because they've come to you, that conversation can happen and bam, suddenly you're not giving them what they expected, but you're giving them something maybe more evidence informed that could really solve their issues. So it's really healthy to hear that you're looking outside the box. Of course you are. Well done, Alison Gruber, for looking outside the box. You're coming along nicely. It sounds so patronizing. But no, this is why people need to be following people like yourself. Um, because, yeah, thinking outside the box is huge. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right. Well, look, it's 9.04. I know you've got busy things to do, I'm sure. 
Um, but I really thank you for giving up your time for coming on the show. Um, if people want to follow what you do, like I said, I think it's just Twitter, which you um, are on. Um, occasionally, yeah. Yeah, occasionally yeah, occasionally you dip occasionally in there. A tweet, yeah. <laughs> um, if people do want to follow you, then that is at IU Biomechanics. So the letters IU Biomechanics, which obviously stands for Indiana University. Yeah, yes, IU Biomechanics. Um, and definitely, even if 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 um, Alison is not um, as as posting as often as you would like, that's a good thing. It means that she's able to do research as opposed to just being on Twitter all day long. But if you just scroll back, there's some fantastic reshares and tweets and 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 all sorts of useful information there. So it's worth having a look through. Right, that's it, people. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, that was the last episode. If you listened to the podcast and you haven't listened to the other three, then just check them out. If you want to see what our guests look like, um, and get the visual input from it um, and the things I've shared on the screen and just go to YouTube. Um, One Chat Live is going to take another little pause now while I just assess all this information. But as I have said, if you're in the UK and you're interested in um, gate analysis and putting a little bit of evidence into practice, then go to One Chat Live and have a look at the gate course that I'm running in May. It might be something that um, can help your business um, and, and the runners who you look after. So check that out. But for now, I think the only thing I have to say again once more is thank you, Dr. Alison Gruber. Thank you for having me. It was great to be here. Thanks very much. I'm going to shut down the lounge now. Thanks, uh, Kima Savvy, for your questions. If you stick around just for a second, Alison, so I can say thank you to you once we're not live anymore. Um, thanks, people, for listening. If you listen to the podcast, then please, please, if you have enjoyed it, just leave a rating and review. It just means the good word of our guests reaches more people because it appears higher in Google. It's as simple as that. Thanks for listening um, and hopefully see you very much soon. You're listening to Run Chat Live podcast putting the evidence back into running injury and performance.